sermon text is Daniel chapter 2. can be found in the Bible on the rack in front of you on page 737. Hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts from me, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you did not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was very angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for now you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? 
Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the weird wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Will you pray with me? Lord, we all come here this morning with baggage. And um, if everyone's anything like me coming here thinking it's going to be really hard to concentrate with everything going on in my life. And uh, but God, you spoke things into existence. And so would you do that today in our hearts, Father? Would you break up the hard soil in our hearts, break it down so that we can receive your word to know and see Jesus more and more clearly, to love him more. And Father, we praise you for your word. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen. Here's some information. I don't need information. Sorry. Got my. uh... (laughs) Goodness gracious. All right. All right. Thank you, Siri. Um, Some of you were alive in the year 2000. Um, Some of you were not. I'm feeling more and more old as uh, more and more new people come into the church and getting to know uh, a lot of the the new people coming in. But in the election cycle of 2000, there was a a man named Howard Dean. And some of you don't know who Howard Dean is. You think that he might be the guy that makes the sausage. But that's that's Jimmy Dean. He actually had been the governor of Vermont. One week prior to the Iowa caucus, Jimmy Dean's... uh, Jimmy... (laughs) 
Howard Dean, I don't know, is he the sausage or, okay. Uh, Howard Dean, his, his face brandished the covers of Time and Newsweek, an honor that was usually reserved for the winner of the New Hampshire primary, which was going to come a few weeks later. Competitors of Howard Dean had trembled before his $40 million war chest. He was a Democrat Republicans were afraid of. They were in awe of his groundbreaking uh, uh, fundraising apparatus. And he had, he had lost the Iowa caucus. And afterwards, some of you will know this, is known as the I Have a Scream speech. Uh, he, uh, he, he got up there on the back end of losing to John Kerry. He was advised to just throw off your jacket and let it rip. And so that he does. He goes, he grabs the mic, and he got overzealous about everywhere that he was going to go. And it was like a conquering king going all over the country. And he's like, we're going to go here, and then we're going to go there, and we're going to Oklahoma and then Arkansas. And he ends the speech with, yeah! And that word right there was the end of Howard Dean's march to Washington. That one word brought his downfall. The end of his speech was shown over 700 times the next four, the next four days. Everyone saw the, yeah, and they thought, no way can I vote for that guy. It all came crashing down with one word. It's a good reminder of the delicate nature of the rising and falling of leaders and empires and kingdoms. And as we read today, and we'll continue to read the end of Daniel 2, we're going to see that the rise and fall of kingdoms doesn't come on a whim or on a word, but rather a will, a decreed will of God. Today, the text we're looking at together, we're looking at the mystery of history, and it's revealed in Daniel 2, and it's we're going to look at the implications for us in the here and now. First of all, we see an impossible demand. I want you to notice the insecurity and the brutality of Nebuchadnezzar. Consider all that Nebuchadnezzar had done, and that's what makes this pretty incredible. He had just conquered surrounding nations with sheer force and might, and now he's being undone by a subconscious, by a scary dream. The nations around him were terrified of him because of his might. But his people in Babylon, they loved him. He was immensely popular, the highest approval rating, you would say. Yet here he knew just enough to cause him to panic. The massive metallic monster in his dream felt ominous or scary. Who knows, he thought, it may be about me and my kingdom. And what puzzles me the most and sends a chill down my spine is that mysterious small stone that brought the whole thing down. What am I going to do? So here we have the king of the biggest, baddest empire in the world. And as one commentator put it, he's shaking as he unbuttons his PJs in the morning. And the language here gives the impression that this may have happened in the middle of the night. When his sleep left him, he called for help, for help. He woke up and consider how quickly things spiral here. Consider what he put on the interpretation of the dream. Beyond that, tell me what my dream was. 
A death sentence if you can't do it. I've often thought that we need interpreters at my house because my wife has crazy dreams. Some of you may have had conversations with her about her dreams. She historically has these crazy dreams. I often think, how could she have dreamed all of that? And what would cause her mind to do that? The other morning was no exception. Literally, uh, within the last two weeks, she texted me. It was last Wednesday. She said, I dreamed that we had a storage unit with several items in it, including an outdoor kitchen type piece of furniture with a hot tub. We had a few men help you bring it to our house. I also made a big pot of spaghetti for a large crowd, but Susanna Brown and Kelly Sisson wouldn't serve it. They only wanted to serve big salads. So we told the Burnett's that we would just bring it to the next midweek Wednesday night meal that we didn't want to eat. Do we have an interpreter in here? Does anyone want to take a stab at that one? But what if I were to tell you that your life depends on you to interpret this dream of Jessica's? I know that many of you are savvy enough that could come up with an interpretation if your dream depended on it. And that's the problem here. Nebuchadnezzar knew that there were going to be some people lying to him to save their lives. So he upped the ante and said, not only have to tell the interpretation, you have to tell me the dream. Or you are going to die. Who does that? Wicked pagan tyrants. That's who does that. But I want you to notice the grace in this whole account. A guy named Walter Luthi says, when tyrants suffer bad dreams, God is at work. Why did Nebuchadnezzar have this dream? Why was he so insecure? I mean, no one was challenging his authority. He was well respected by the citizens of Babylon. His armies could crush any world power. Yet for all of his wealth and all of his fame and all of his power, he felt deeply insecure. Why would that be? How did he arrive at the conclusion that despite being the most powerful man in the world, he still cannot shake the sense of weakness and fragility and vulnerability and that he was truly exposed? The answer? God's grace. Unbeknownst to him, God was projecting that dream into his subconscious. And the omnipotent God was communicating with this man who rejected everything about him. And instead of dismissing him, God did not write off this insecure, brutal tyrant. Rather, he brought him to a point where he had a more accurate and redemptive view of himself and of all of history. God in his grace gave the tyrant a dream and in doing so, he gave him perspective. So that's the first thing I want us to see in the passage, an impossible demand. And secondly, I want us to see an impressive response in verses 14 through 30. I want you to look at the confidence spilling onto the page with me. In verse 14, it says, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. This is the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar, right? With prudence and discretion to Arioch. Verse 15, he says, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Verse 16 says Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the dream. 
Think of the confidence that it took Daniel to do this. Where was his confidence coming from? Was his confidence rooted in himself? I want you to look at verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed and the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He told his companions to seek mercy from the God of heaven. It's as if Daniel knew from his experience with this God that God would come through, that God would show mercy. And he says, come on, let's let's ask for mercy. And his confidence was not rooted in himself. It was rooted in his God. He knew God. If you flip forward to verses 26 and 27. It says the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, <laughs> hard time with that. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And then Kyle answered, if Kyle was in his position, and then Kyle answered and said, absolutely, I can. And you're going to freak out when you hear what I have to tell you. That's not Daniel. Daniel wouldn't allow for it. Daniel answered in verse 27, answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians or astrologers. He starts his answer with, no, I can't. I can't show you that no one can. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He says, no one can do this. I have no confidence in myself. My confidence is in my God. Isn't that the story of scripture and redemptive history? I have nothing in me. Deserving of peace with God. But God, being rich in mercy, poured out his love for me in Christ. And then there's one more. If you skip ahead to verse 45, we didn't read it uh, together yet. We'll get there later. But verse 45, I want you to see his confidence at the very end. Daniel interprets the dream for the king. He tells him what it means, knowing that when he tells the king what it means, this is not good news for the king and it could cost him his life. But look at his confidence. He says, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. This is the opposite of insecure. Insecure Nebuchadnezzar. Notice his response to the king after he tells him the dream and its interpretation. He doesn't know how the king is going to respond. But he doesn't need the king's acceptance of his interpretation. He just says a great God has made it known. It's certain and it's sure. So we are to notice the confidence of Daniel. But Daniel reiterates in the text that his confidence was not in his own efforts or his own wisdom, but in God, the one who is faithful and gives wisdom and might as he pleases. And it's this confidence that moves Daniel to respond in prayer. Oftentimes, my confidence leads me to take things into my own hands. But Daniel's confidence in his God led him to prayer. I won't spend much time here. 
But notice that Daniel's not only his confidence, but his response in prayer. Notice his instinct, his gut reaction, his knee jerk reaction is to go to God. And how does he do it? He does these two things, and this would be a helpful application for every person in this room. He grabs some friends and they seek mercy together. I hope that's the hallmark of our church family, one of the hallmarks of our church family. Do not take for granted, brothers and sisters, what we have here. And there are lonely people all around us. You work with lonely, lonely people that have not one close friend that they can go to, to grab a friend and confide and seek mercy from God. So gather friends and seek mercy. Why? Because he is the he is the God who cares and the God who listens. And unlike the gods of Babylon and the gods of this world, our God is able. I want to encourage you, do not grow weary in prayer. Perhaps you've been praying over and over and over again. You feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. Do not give up in prayer. Keep praying. Take the confidence of Daniel rooted in God's character and his mercy and believe that when you pray, God hears you and he is able to do something about it. Believe that when you gather with your home group, that God is hearing your prayers and answering your prayers, your cries for help, for mercy. When you pray with your wife and your kids, know that God hears and answers When you pray before a meal today, know that you are not just speaking words out into the atmosphere. You're praying to a God that hears you and that knows you. I know that many of you can testify to the power of prayer. And if we were to spend time telling stories of how God had met us in our cries of mercy, there would probably not be a dry eye in this room. God is so good to hear your prayers. Do not stop praying. Thirdly, we are intended to praise with Daniel. We're intended to praise with him. The text seems to place an emphasis on this in Daniel 2. It's structurally the center of the passage, but theologically it is as well. Not only to chapter 2, but the rest of the book of Daniel. Let's look at Daniel's response of praise. Because to be honest... Had I been Daniel, so Daniel, uh, looking back, reflecting on his time in Babylon, spending 70 years in Babylon, reflecting on his time, I think if that had been me, I probably would have skipped verses 20 through 23. It would have flowed really well without those verses. I would venture a guess that many godly men and women would have left it out as, 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 as they were recounting the story because they may have thought, well, this is a personal time of praise for me. I could have easily stopped at verse 19 with then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then verse 24. So Daniel went to Arioch and said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. But for Daniel, that would not do. As he reflected on his time in Babylon, he had he had to put down in praise. He had to put down in words his praise because God is deserving of it. And let it be known for all of history. Other people need to know it. 
This wasn't a praise in passing as I'm so prone to do as God delivers me, provides for me, protects me and my family in all these different ways. And I praise him in passing. He had it put down in words. When's the last time that you took time to reflect on when God had delivered you, had provided for you and your family, and you decided to put it down on paper? Or on a dry erase board, or on chalk, or whatever it might be at your house for your family to see, to put down your own praise. So what was it though? What was it about God that sent him to realms of glory? First of all, Daniel praised God for his character. He is the God to whom belongs all wisdom. He's the true and living God, it tells us. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might, in verse 20. The true and living God, as opposed to the false gods of Babylon and this world, and he alone knows the future. God in his grace has told us to go to him anytime any of us are lacking wisdom. Let Daniel remind that, remind you of that, and let James back him up that God gives generously, and as one translation says, he gives generously and ungrudgingly. That we should, like Daniel, ask with confidence when we need wisdom. Ask with faith and God will give it. And not only will he share his wisdom, but he will show you his power as he accomplishes his purposes on this earth. So Daniel praised God for his character and he also praised God for his control. Not only does God in his wisdom know the future, but he alone will accomplish his plan. And Daniel can rest in that. He actually praises God for that. He will bring about his purposes. He is the God to whom belong all wisdom and all might. In the in the vision that God gave Daniel, he showed Daniel that he is the one who sets up kings and kingdoms. He is the one who removes them at his will. So he praises God in verses in verse 21 as being the one who changes time and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God's sovereignty extends over all earthly powers and all authorities, including guys like Nebuchadnezzar, and isn't confined solely to those who worship him. He decides who holds power and when they hold power. I don't know about you, but I'm always struck by the slight dig that's often pointed out when someone calls a president by their name. Or just their last name. Mr. Trump. Or someone wants to dig President Biden so they say, Joe, old Joe. Presidents will come and go. It's good. It's good and wise to respect authorities. Someone like the President of the United States should be treated with respect. But the dig is also the truth. Presidents come and go. President Biden is Joe Biden. He is just a man. And like all earthly rulers will one day be gone with the wind. The Lord sets up and the Lord brings down who he wills. He is also the God who reveals mysteries. This is this brought praise to Daniel's lips. What did he reveal? Well, obviously, he revealed miraculously the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And for that, Daniel breaks out into praise. 
But I also want us to see that through the story here that he is a God who reveals the emptiness of paganism. Look, look back at verses 10 and 11. These are the Magi, the Babylonian wise men. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Dale Ralph Davis put it so well. He says, now think about this. Why does the biblical writer want you to hear verses 10 and 11, the declaration of the Chaldeans? Not because in helpless frustration they so much as call the king an irrational nutcase, but because their words are a confession of the failure of paganism. It's a dig at Babylonian paganism. It's dripping with irony. It's the ultimate setup. Daniel here is setting a table. He says that their their words, they have set a table for the God of the universe to dine at and to show off. Again, Dale Ralph Davis says Daniel himself reinforces their words in verse 27. But there is a God in heaven and in Babylon who reveals mysteries. Daniel can give thanks to him. For you have given me wisdom. This is verse 23. For you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So by depicting the helplessness of paganism, the writer wants to say, don't you see it? Paganism is nothing but a religious cul-de-sac. It can give no sure word from outside. The troops aren't coming. No extra help is coming. By contrast, then, then, and in light of the whole chapter, he is saying that life is a dead-end street without a God who reveals what the future holds. He is a God who reveals the future. He's telling exiled Israel, and by extension, he's telling us, do not fall for it. Don't be awed by paganism. It's all been photoshopped. Despite its trappings and its splendor, it is empty and dark. He is also the God who knows what is in the darkness. It's an odd thing to praise God for. But as one commentator pointed out, Daniel's praise here helps us. Because he assures us that even what God doesn't tell us, he knows when he says He knows what is in the darkness. You can walk into the future with a God like that. Who shows you that history is going toward his unshakable kingdom. And who assures you that even though you have many personal uncertainties, you follow a God who knows what is in the darkness. So you can keep going with hope and without fear. So regardless of our circumstances, we can pray confidently too, like Daniel. And praise joyfully, like Daniel, this God who is always at work. We can, as the song said, sing of his greatness and all preeminence over all creation. And that brings us to the glorious reality of the mystery in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which I am calling, unabashedly, an incredible pebble. 
Verses 31 through 45. Read it with me because we did not read that earlier. Verse uh, 31, sorry, uh, verse 36, I'm sorry, through 45. This was the dream. He's interpreting the dream now. He's going to tell him what the dream meant. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. A little flattery doesn't hurt, does it? And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Here it is. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So it turns out. That there was a very good and a very real reason why King Nebuchadnezzar felt insecure. His kingdom and those who succeeded after him, they only stood in the way of the one true kingdom that God was setting up. The advancement of a hidden kingdom, the kingdom of God. Daniel did tell Nebuchadnezzar, yes, he interpreted that part. Yes, you are the head of gold. But Daniel didn't identify the. The other kingdoms represented by silver, bronze and iron. There's general agreement, though, now that the silver represented the combined Medo-Persian Empire, the bronze, the Greek Empire. Think of the power of Alexander the Great, who is said to have wept while in his 20s because there were no other lands to conquer. And then the fourth, the iron, would be the Roman Empire in verse 40. The dream suggests that each of these empires will run their course. They will come and they will go. Then in the days of the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, there would be something that happened. Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And now we come to the nature of this pebble. The pebble is Christ. It starts surprisingly small. This is what we stand at. In awe when we stand before the manger. And see the coming Jesus of Nazareth, born into a poor family, ridiculed, mocked throughout his life. 
the small stone beginning to strike the kingdoms of this world was what was happening in, in the early 30s of the first century while Rome conquered. It's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday and on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday in the birth, death, life, resurrection, birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And the ascension of Christ, God was setting up another kingdom. I want you to see also the subversive and powerful nature of this pebble. Remember when John the Baptist, we just talked about this a few weeks ago, John the Baptist came preaching and he could sense that there was something catastrophic or cataclysmic that was going on. It was in the air. And what was the one word he thundered over and over, over, over again? Repent. Repent. Turn around. Why? The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why is there such upheaval in the world today? Daniel tells us here with this interpretation of this dream. Upheaval in the world today is not primarily happening because Satan is having his way with rulers and authorities. He may think that it is. He he may think that he is, but and and you may think that he is, that that turmoil is happening around the world because Satan and his work around the world, though that's part of it. Upheaval in the world today is not primarily happening because the elite are moving the chess pieces around in the world so that they win and you lose. Upheaval in the world today is not primarily happening because of sin that has caused creation to just come crashing down. Upheaval is primarily happening in the world today because God's kingdom is continuing to encroach on the kingdoms of this world. Ronald Wallace shows us that the main reason for the upheavals in history is the progress of the hidden kingdom of Jesus, which presses in on our present world from beyond. Jesus' kingdoms keep invading human kingdoms, but keeps on being resisted and rejected by those kingdoms. The turmoil in our world is fundamentally due to human resistance to King Jesus' kingdom of light and justice and wholeness. And he will use everything, all of history and God's people to draw everyone's attention to him. Daryl Johnson helps us here by noting one implication of this is that turmoil in our lives is not a sign of the absence of God's rule. But rather the presence of God's rule confronting the reign of other gods to whom we have bowed. Turmoil in your life and affliction in your life is never a sign that God has forgotten you. It could be that his grace is bothering you. Reminding you to submit to his kingdom and his rule. And this turmoil and upheaval will continue until the resistance ends and Christ returns again. This dream is also warning, a warning to us to not waste our lives on wobbly kingdoms. The dream warns us that whatever is not consistent with the kingdom of Jesus will one day be revealed for what it is. So much chaff that the wind just blows away. And there is no trace left of its existence. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's never a waste of your time and resources to pour them out, to pour out your lives for the advance of God's kingdom. It's never a waste of prayer to pray, your kingdom come. 
A friend of mine encouraged me a few weeks ago with this quote from Richard Baxter. He was imagining once we get to heaven, Richard Baxter was imagining once we get to heaven, he says, that soul will look back with astonishment at the flesh that demanded to be pleased, even at the loss of this happiness. Did you make me question the truth of this glory? Did you draw me to distrust the Lord? Speaking to the flesh, did you question the truth of scripture that promised this rest? Well, my soul, are you not now ashamed that you ever questioned the love that has brought you here? You suspected his love when you should have only suspected yourself. Do not lose sight of this incredible pebble. Why? Because it's unstoppable. Unstoppable, simply unstoppable. God is actively working, not simply predicting events or even reacting to events that are happening in the world. He is working all things for his own glory in the building of Christ's kingdom and for the good of his people. That little small stone cut without human hands has come and it keeps on rolling slowly but surely overcoming anything and everything that blocks its way until it fills the entire earth. That is the mystery of history. First unveiled to Daniel and through him to the king of one of history's most powerful empires. What Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream and what Daniel proclaimed in the interpretation is that the coming progress and triumph of the kingdom of this little stone is inevitable. And one day that little stone rejected and resisted will be the mountain that fills the entire earth. It was this dream in Daniel 2, the revelation of the mystery of history that gave Desmond Tutu, the beloved Anglican bishop of South Africa during the days of apartheid, long before he won the Nobel Peace Prize, the courage to walk into the minister of law and order and to look him in the eyes, the one who had the power to enforce apartheid and said, Mr. Minister, we must remind you that you are not God. You are just a man, and one day your name shall be more a mere scribble on the pages of history, while the name of Jesus Christ shall live forever. It was this passage that gave a Christian CIA worker and a consultant for a PR firm hired by the brutal dictator, President Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines, to reshape his image in the West. So he had hired a, a, a PR worker in the United States to come out there, meet with him, And he traveled with a CIA agent, and they were to meet with this brutal dictator. And Daniel's confidence and interpretation of Daniel 2 inspired one of them at their scheduled meeting with this dictator to simply read Daniel chapter 2. And three months later, Mr. Marcos was gone. It's this incredible pebble that is unstoppable, that is at work in the world today. I was encouraged by a friend of mine who's uh, the uh, uh, missions pastor at Brook Hills. He told me what's happening in the world today. He said, he pointed out this surprisingly small pebble, this subversive and powerful pebble is unstoppable. He told me that they were recently shocked to hear that one person from the United Arab Emirates, an Emirati, recently believed the gospel and was baptized at the end of last year. He said, I currently know of only one other believer among this group in the entire world. Why do we as Christians look at that and celebrate? 
Because the small pebble is unstoppable. God is building his kingdom in the United Arab Emirates. Chip talked about the unprecedented recent conversions of conversions of seven believers from the Malay people in Malaysia. Despite government opposition, the little stone keeps rolling and growing. He told me of this story of two brothers whom we'll call Nathan and Caleb. Their names have been changed to conceal their identity since this is being recorded. And they live among 10, 10 million people in an unreached people group in Central Asia. And this people group is notorious for sending terrorists around the world, the same ones behind 9-11. No known church among them, even though there are a handful of believers speckled across the globe. Two years ago, Nathan, the youngest brother, found himself in London. And someone shared the gospel with Nathan and they gave him a Bible. And he begins reading it and he comes home. He went home and he, he brought the Bible home on a visit and his older brother, Caleb, found him reading it. In anger, Caleb beat up Nathan, but pretty badly and tells him, never read this book again. So Nathan goes back to school in London, but he leaves the Bible behind under his bed mattress and, and Caleb finds it. And it angered him. And later that night, Caleb had a dream to stop beating his brother, but to read what his brother had been reading. And they both end up coming to faith in Jesus in this time. The little peb, pebble kept rolling. Only a few months later, in February 2023, the pebble started growing. There was catastrophic, historic floods in Pakistan. All of a sudden, they found themselves thrust into a leadership position. And through efforts, they go and pile Resources and go around and visit different villages. And as they go, they're sharing the gospel, allowing people to hear the scriptures in their own language. And for the first time that they'd ever heard it, Caleb was sending his phone around and they were listening to it on his phone. It became very dangerous in villages. He was even asked to hide out in one of the homes. And they finally tell their family, mom and dad and another brother, and the dad and the brother became violently angry and they, they stormed off. And Caleb uh, and the mom, though, listened. If Caleb and Nathan were reported, they could have lost their lives. The mom, however, expresses some vague belief in Jesus at this time. And then fast forward a few months and some mission partners from Brook Hills goes over there to visit with them. And they have dinner with this mom and Caleb and Nathan, and they finally hear the mom's story of coming to faith. Fifty years ago, in the 70s, a missionary dropped a Bible off with her family, and they told her the story of Mary and Joseph and how God had comforted Mary in a dream. And she remembered having peace when that story was read. And then later, in the 80s and early 90s, when she became pregnant, her husband was violent and angry and abusive. And she thought about that story. And she either found the story in the Bible or recollected how God had comforted Mary in her dream when she was pregnant with Jesus. Sorry, with, yes, with Jesus. And then she herself had a dream that brought her comfort. She dreamed that her children would one day grow up to become servants of Jesus for their people. My friend Chip, who's telling me these stories, said, all of this was unfolding before our eyes. 
He says, I keep thinking how we think we are pulling God into this global mission thing. And 50 years ago, he planted the seed and we're just seeing the fruit now. Perspective changes everything. We have heard the interpretation. It's sure we can see globally that there is nothing that finally stands in the way of advancing the reign of the crucified and risen carpenter from Nazareth. Nothing. A quick word. Adults. Look at the stone. Fix your eyes on Jesus and see that his kingdom, though you can't see it, his kingdom is growing. Look at Jesus go. Sing, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Parents, teach your children now about the incredible pebble that keeps on rolling and toppling and growing. Kids in the room. Look at the stone that the world is rejecting. When you go to court training, listen to your teachers tell you about Jesus. Read your Bibles. All the while the world is rejecting Jesus, it continues to grow and it's growing into a mighty mountain across the globe. And like Daniel, kids, you too can have confidence that even in this nation of ours who one, the one day may not exist, they couldn't have fathomed that Babylon would not exist one day. That one day, if this nation is gone, you can praise the God who controls all of history. Jesus is the stone, and he's doing work. Well, lastly, I need to close it down here shortly. An improved position, verses 46 through 49. King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, 46 tells us, and he paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And then Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So what do we do while we wait for the return of Christ? We know that the kingdoms of this world are fading. Go to work. Be faithful. Serve where God has planted you. This kingdom is fading, but we work for the good of those around us while we wait for the incoming Christ. And then let the watching world reflect on our lives and our God. Remember, Daniel is bilingual. I mentioned that last week in verse seven. The language changes from Hebrew, the, the, the language of the Jews to Aramaic, which was the language of the known world. It was as if the whole world was supposed to be able to pick this up and read it for themselves with their own eyes. God has a message for the world. He is a God who wants the world to know who he is. And lastly, it's not in your notes, but give your life to this kingdom. Give your life to this kingdom. I want to close by going back to something that Daniel prayed in verse 23. 
I want us to spend a moment looking at the personal nature of this God who is all wise and all powerful. And I want us to come and adore the God who delights in a relationship with you. Notice Daniel changes. The pronouns change here. The, it's very personal. He goes, uses first and second person pronouns. To you, O God of my fathers, verse 23, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and made, now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. He switched from the awesome power of, of objective truth to the awesome wonder of the relationship that he had with this God. God had answered their pleas for mercy and he poured out his compassion. And Daniel says he poured out his compassion on me. He has given me wisdom and me insight. He is a God who is personal and delights to have a relationship with his people. And it doesn't get any more personal in nature than for that tiny pebble to show up on this earth in Jesus of Nazareth. For it was Jesus who took my place. Who took your place. And Daniel was not privy to what we're privy to today. The stone is even greater than Daniel could have ever fathomed. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. This incredible God. He is my God. And he can be your God by faith today. And as we look to the table today, we'll have an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. And we remember and celebrate what God has done for us in giving us his son. We celebrate this rock that keeps on rolling. The mystery of history will return to share this meal with us again. So in this time, and David, you guys can come up in this time, we are going to spend a few moments reflecting on the goodness of God and sending Jesus to the cross for our sins. In a moment, you'll be able to get up and come down. And I hope that the incredible picture of this incredible pebble will be fixed in your mind. We'll learn in Daniel chapter 7 that what it cost for this kingdom to be established was great. It was weighty. And that's what we reflect on as we take the Lord's Supper. If you're not a believer here, if you've never trusted Jesus to, to save you, this is an opportunity for you to come to Christ as you say and just confess that there's nothing in you good enough that can make you right before God and give you peace before God. But in this time, we would ask that you would wait as others, believers who have trusted in Jesus, come and take the, the elements, the bread and the juice. And so we would ask that you would do that. And so in this time, believers, let's celebrate the costly, incredible pebble together.